Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? My Jungian therapist said to me that this breakdown was the best thing that had ever happened to me. If you haven't been keelhauled by life, then you're not living. Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. But now, the sun aches over the tree line. This thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. Speaking lines gleaned from a dark and no-mooned night when only my pen knew its way. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Welcome to the Anxious Poets Podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. This is episode 17. I'm sorry there's been a bit of a hiatus between episode 16 and episode 17. I was meant to have a guest in January, but sadly his father died, so that's had to be postponed and we'll do it at a later date. But now we'll leap straight into this episode with a recitation of a poem by Dylan Thomas. A refusal to mourn the death by fire of a child in London. Never until the mankind making bird, beast and flower, fathering and all humbling darkness, tells with silence the last light breaking, and the still hour is come of the sea tumbling in harness, and I must enter again the round Zion of the water bead, and the synagogue of the ear of corn. Shall I let pray the shadow of a sound, or sow my salt seed in the least valley of sackcloth, to mourn the majesty and burning of the child's death? I shall not murder the mankind of her going with a grave truth, nor blaspheme down the stations of the breath with any further elegy of innocence and youth. Deep with the first dead lies London's daughter, robed in the long friends, the grains beyond age, the dark veins of her mother, secret by the unmourning water of the riding Thames. After the first death there is no other. I want to talk in this podcast to have an imaginary, if you like, conversation with you about family and origin, where we come from, what shapes us as adults. It's very clear to me, as someone who's done spiritual direction with people for 20 years now, and, and spent my lifetime wondering and thinking about what makes us who we are, that what happens to us as we grow up, what happens to our parents that they then impart to us, willingly or unwillingly, shapes the way we see the world, for good or ill. And you're probably wondering, why on earth has he read that poem then? What's that got to do with mothering and fathering? For me, that poem, Dylan Thomas is is an unsung war poet, in my opinion, a poet of the Second World War. And this poem is about hearing of a child being killed in the bombing. 
in London. And there's the connection for me. My mother, Georgina, Rosemary Georgina Scott, was born in London, in Wilsdon, in 1930. So her first nine years were pre-war living, which was pretty tough uh, in London at that time. My, my grandfather was a bit of a jack of all trades. Um, he was a window cleaner. He fell off his ladders at one point uh, and was terribly injured and couldn't work. In the war, he became a, an air raid warden, a fire warden. Um, my grandmother, on my mother's side, Eva, who my daughter is named after, was from Little Plumstead in Norfolk and at the age, I think, of 13, had come to London to be a maid, a kitchen maid. Um, she used to watch upstairs, downstairs and tut regularly because it was not realistic. She used to say things like, well, the, the kitchen maid would never talk to the cook like that. She'd have to go through the other three grades of, of servant before you could ever talk to a cook. So she came to London to, to work. Um, I don't really know why. I presume it was because they were very hard up and that was a way to, to make a living. And she had my mum in 1930. And then the war was declared in 1939. And my mum was evacuated to, uh, well, she thought it was going to be a place called Littlehampton, which was on the coast. Unfortunately, it was Northampton, which is not on the coast. And she um, was, this, this is amazing to me. This is, this is the difference, I think, between the generations. I can't imagine this happening in the pandemic that we're living through now, which is a, a similar kind of shock to the collective national system, international, global system. Um, so the government decided that children should be evacuated from the cities because the bombing was likely to happen. They knew that. And... Um, my mum was, was told that she was being evacuated and they, they gave her a little label, gave my grandmother obviously, a little label that she had to tie onto her coat and probably her luggage. They were told to go to the station, whichever station it was, and just deposit the children onto the train. And when the child got to the other end, they were allocated to a family. The family would fill in the little brown label, put a stamp on it, or whatever, post it, and that was the first that the family knew where their child had ended up. Which I just find incredible. The sort of trust in the national system. Um, and there were lots of posters, the children are safer in the country and all that kind of stuff. And um, so the poem of Dylan Thomas's takes me to that, uh, that time uh, of, of the war and the blitz which unfortunately after six weeks my grandmother having received the label went to see where my mother was living and discovered that she hadn't had a proper bath for six weeks and my grandmother was horrified and said will you not staying here and took her back home to Wilsdon in North London. And from then on, right through till 1945, they lived in Chapter Road uh, in a shared house and lived through the Blitz. And it was a, a seminal experience for my mum. She used to talk about it and my grandma, they talked about it quite a lot and I was fascinated. And I used to say to them, you know, how, how did you live through that then? How did you cope with that? And they would say, in, in that characteristic way of that generation, and this is part of what I have inherited from them, well, you just got on with it. Everyone was in the same boat, so you just got on with it. And she would talk about uh, going down the tube stations to escape the bombing, that they had an Anderson shelter, which was a um, like a, a, a domed piece of corrugated iron you dig a big hole 
then then you would dome this this corrugated iron into a into a U shape, and and reinforce it and everything. Then you would put earth all over the top of it, uh, and and that was a, a a place of more safety than being in a house when the bombs were dropping. Um, and and she talked about nights in the shelter um, and what they would take down there and they would play games and all lit by candles or, or, or hurricane lamps. Um, and, I mean, I remember going to the Imperial War Museum a number of years ago and they actually had recreated an Anderson shelter and you would go in as your little family and then they would recreate the sound of the, blo- the bombing outside of the Blitz and uh, it was terrifying. I remember I was with my kids, they were small, and they were like, how did they live through this? So that's part of my inheritance. And and I think there's a, a real, um, I was gonna say, and I, I will say, a real spiritual power in understanding where your forebears, where your family come from and what they live through and what your inheritance is from them. Uh, I, one of the reasons that I've been um, not podcasting is that uh, I've I had to do a funeral, and um, they take up quite a lot of your time and energy. I'm I'm not ordained or anything, but every so often I get asked to do one because, and this is interesting to me, uh, people say to me. Oh, so about a year ago, this lovely woman, Amanda, said to me, my mum's died. I was in a men's group with her husband, and she said, Tom says that you you are, you, you won't be religious, but you'll be meaningful and spiritual. And I thought, well, I wonder, <laughs> what am I giving off that says I'm, I'm not, not going to be overly religious, but somehow spiritual? And I, I, I took it as a compliment. Um, and, and felt really humbled by it. I think it's a huge privilege to be asked to do something like that. Uh, and, and so I did her mum's funeral and her brother, Gary, was there and he said to me at the end, he said, look, you know, when I go, I'd really, I'd really want you to do mine. And this was no idle threat, if you like, because he got pancreatic cancer. And thankfully he lived for another year, but he died, God bless him, earlier on this uh this year and and they asked me to do the funeral so uh again i they 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 filled in his mum and then he had uh for his his sister and his daughter these wonderful little books that you can give to someone and it it, it says i can't remember what it says on the front they've got like this lovely blue cover and it says something like tell me who you are and and so if you're someone's uh, brother or sister it says you know sister tell me who you are and inside there's lots of blank pages but with headings and it says things like um, what was your first memory where were you born what were your parents like how did you grow up all of those kind of th- wonderful things and uh, as far as doing a funeral's concerned it's just like manna from heaven because you've got all their reminiscences and 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 what shaped them and 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 that's really clear to me how we are shaped by those early years in our families and 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 by the circumstances so not just the little family story but the the social story of of where we've grown up and the national story how all those things the kind of how history rolls over our lives so my parents lives were rolled over by the second world war they had no choice they were caught up in this maelstrom and that's part of what the dylan thomas poem captures for me um he he is he's like uh, an elegist he's he's um he almost sees himself as the speaker at the funeral Never until the mankind-making bird, beast and flower, fathering and all-humbling darkness, tells with silence the last light breaking and the still hour is come of the sea tumbling in harness. It, it, it's like he's, he's... I can't speak of this unspeakable thing. 
and I love that all fathering and all humbling darkness and it, it, it captured to me that the, in the war in London in all the big cities there was the blackout everything had to be so no light shone so that it didn't give the German bombers any target uh, and that's what my grandfather did he'd go around telling people we, you can see a light close that curtain make that blackout work so there was a darkness over London you know and, and people crashed into things and fell down holes because of it um, and then he says I must enter again the round Zion of the water bead I've talked about this before I've no clear sense in my rational mind of what all that means the the round zion of the water bead and the synagogue of the ear of corn shall i let pray the shadow of a sound or sow my salt seed in the last valley of sackcloth to mourn the majesty and burning of the child's death i mean wow that's that's incredible language religious language in a lot of ways but but not denominational language about the synagogue of the year of corn in other words the real church the real cloister or um cathedral is the natural world um the zion of the water bead it's the natural world that that gives us the best context in which to find ourselves and find meaning and deep with the first dead lies Dun London's daughter, robed in the long friends, the grains beyond age, the dark veins of her mother, secret by the unmourning water of the riding Thames. After the first death, there is no other. That's an echo to me. I don't think he meant it necessarily. Francis says, you know, a, a very similar thing, St. Francis, that, uh, that, that, after the first death we need fear no other and it's like grief is a kind of death losing people so that's another thing that I feel has deeply shaped my life is loss the loss of my family my parents uh, I lost my dad and I've said this before when I was 11 years old um, and that was due to this rolling over of their lives by the war he was only 63 I'm about to turn 60 and he had a stroke when he was 60 and it makes me feel um, a kind of somber anniversary that I'm about to turn the age when he was blighted by a stroke and had three more years to live. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast. I'll come back to my father. This Dylan Thomas poem really conjures my mother and grandparents' lives uh, for me the Blitz and all that I've inherited from them. And I want to read you a, a poem that I wrote for my mum. It's in Arriving in Magic called Evacuee. I imagine you standing there on the platform with your label and your gas mask strung over your shoulder, excited to be traveling, chattering with friends, then tearful, startled at that first shunting movement as the train judders gasping steam pulling you away from home away from the blitz away from the bomb laden skies over london i still have your label posted back from northampton the first hard evidence reaching my grandparents doormat of your safe arrival in unfamiliar lodging such a gap of waiting now when i locate a sudden departure in my life where the present state of things demands a moving on, I pray to that little evacuee, the mothering all latent in her child's womb, yet to be born from war's labour and my delivery. Now again, you have been evacuated, 
and I have received no handwritten label, no assurance of your safe arrival. What do I tell your grandchildren, still missing the woman who sang them songs from the war with calm assurances of peace? Is it perhaps that the lengthening gap of absence, the empty chair that must have filled your own mother's Wilsdon Terrace and now sits in the corner of our unvisited Sunday afternoons, is your presence, rendering our deliveries and departures hopeful? Does absence become presence, a sacrament of holding, latent as I evoke you now, and a young girl's hand slips into mine? Does absence become presence, a sacrament of holding, latent as I evoke you now, and a young girl's hand slips into mine? Dylan Thomas's collection that, that the refusal to mourn the death by fire of a child in London comes from is called Deaths and Entrances. And the end of that poem, I'm trying to wrestle with the idea of absence being presence, that someone's exit from this life creates a, a gap a, 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 a lacuna, a, a, an empty space, a liminality that is their presence with us now. And <clears throat> when I finished writing that poem, that line came to me, a young girl's hand slips into mine. And that idea of the mothering all latent in her, I was told that, that all the uh, eggs within a woman's um, uterus are there from from you know once they're formed in their in their own mother's womb all all waiting latent and there was I in that little girl waiting um, for my entrance into the world and and I find that a powerful idea you know Plato th talked about the pre-existence of souls that somehow we pre-exist and then there comes a moment where we make our entrance <laughs> and mine was was unexpected my mother was told she couldn't have children um, my father was 20 years older than her so when they married he was 43 and she was 23 which is a challenging thing in my life to think of how much older he was, what was their relationship like? Um, and so he'd just left the Navy, had no work. They were living with my grandma and grandfather in London, in Chapter Road, I think. And the doctor called her in because she'd missed a couple of periods. And um, he said, oh, I've got great news for you. And my dad was there as well. Because they thought there was something wrong with her. And he said, um, you're going to have a baby. And my dad's reaction to that was, oh, well, that's buggered the issue up a tree. Because he had no work and they had nowhere to live. But um, thankfully, I was uh, welcomed at some point with happiness. Um, my dad would call me when I was a little boy, his bestest gorgeous, um, which which is a really moving thing to me even now. Um for an older man to have a child um, must have been a real challenge. He'd already got a daughter who was almost grown up, I think, um, from a previous marriage. So, you know, I can't imagine at his age suddenly having to look after a baby. But my mum did a lot of it and she was young and more sprightly. Um, and I'll come back to my dad in a minute uh, with, with a couple of pieces. But I just want to read one other poem about this um about this this blitz period of my parents life uh, my mum's life that was evoked for me and this is something about what i think i've inherited 
I think it's a really good question to ask ourselves. What have we inherited from our parents? Um, and I, and I'll, I, I, my my mum's sister's still alive, my auntie Julie. Uh, there was a big gap between them. She was born in '45 at the end of the war, and um, I I asked to go for a walk with her and my uncle. To I wanted to ask them questions about what my dad was really like because my memories are of, of of the memories of a child and my mum would tell me things but of course this is one of the things that you you forget to do because life is just trundling along i should have asked her so much more before she died about my dad and about their relationship and about what made him tick but anyway to come back to my mum one of the things that really alerted me to this inheritance uh was my eldest daughter Eva was training at, Ra at Lambda to be an actor and they at the end of each year or during the year they have productions that they they do and they're high quality productions and they did a, a play called Flare Path by Terence Rattigan and it was um, Terence Rattigan my daughter tells me is, is kind of the the actor's playwright the, the the stage directions and the whole way that they're written are just a joy to act. This was about um, a group of RAF pilots uh, in, during the Second World War at a base and the relationships they had with their women uh, folk. No, that sounds so patronising. Sorry. The relationships that the women had with these pilots. Um, and... My daughter played this woman called Doris Krivinsky. She'd married a Polish count who was a pilot. She was actually from somewhere in the north and she's quite a working class woman. Um, and she played this part. And when we went into the theatre, the, the scene opens with the character of Doris asleep in a chair in a, in a Second World War room. Um, and, and this is the stage direction. On the rise of the curtain, the sole occupant of the room is Countess Doris Skrivinsky, a carelessly dressed woman in her early 30s. She has fallen asleep in a large armchair, a copy of Everybody's open on her lap. A wireless at her side emitted, emitting at intervals the trumpeted call sign of the BBC. And I walked in and she was there and she had this second world war floral print dress on and her hair done in that style and and i was completely unmanned bowled over because it was like looking at my mum and my grandma it was as if they had entered the room and i was i've teared up i i was so moved by this and the fact that we named Eva after my grandma. So here's the piece, my daughter acting. In a chair, she sits, unmoving, acting on a stage as the audience trickle in, playing a woman, as yet unknown, asleep. All the layers of character latent, awaiting the entrance of another to wake her with a first line as the lights go down. But I know the drama has already begun and you started it when you quietly sat down. I felt it so viscerally because you are my child. It is a war play and you have summoned the ghosts of my mother and my grandmother alive in your sleep and your floral printed frock. They knew, like the woman you play, the drone of bombers over search-lit London and a way to live through the all-humbling darkness. That it is a question of enduring, surviving, just getting on with it, but doing it with elan, with kindness and the beautiful ordinariness of love that it is a question of enduring, surviving, just getting on with it, but doing it with elan, 
with kindness and the beautiful ordinariness of love. That's what I inherited. And during this time of lockdown and how testing and stretching this all is, very different from the Blitz, obviously, not half so traumatic um, in the sense of bombs dropping and, and people going abroad and fighting and dying and losing their lives, but traumatic all the same, that we cannot touch one another that we can't see one another except through the miracle of Zoom. Um, and we've had to just get on with it. But my parents testified, my mother especially, to doing it with Elan, with, with the play was called Flare Path, with a kind of humdrum workaday flare. They found ways to not just survive, but to thrive. And to re-echo the poem of Dylan Thomas, the house next door was bombed and people were killed. I think twins were killed. I may have made that up. My mum, I seem to remember my mum remembering that. You know, it was touch and go life and death every day, a bit like we've been with this virus. Threats all around. And yet, you know, she talked so eloquently, and so did my grandma, of how they came through it. And I echo in the poem, Dylan's All Humbling Darkness. There is something really powerful about the way these huge events of history roll over us and remind us that we are powerless. You know, we can't fight a virus um, like we fought the war, We've had to use different kinds of ingenuity. And we're going to have to live with it, it seems to me, for quite a while yet. And then, as I've said before, you know, once you've killed Grendel, you've got Grendel's mother coming along, which is climate change. And we're going to have to, not so much my generation, we've caused it, but the next are going to have to find a way to live through that all-humbling darkness. And I hope we can find a way that's... My inheritance from, from my mother and my grandmother and my grandfather uh, was to do this with a lamb, with kindness. And that is such an underrated thing, kindness. Kindness changes things in a way that I've, I've seen very few other things change things. And the beautiful ordinariness of love. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. So I'd like to go on to talk about the inheritance that I have received from my father. Um, this is all a kind of encouragement. That, you know, there's, there's all, there's ancestry.co.uk, there's all of these ways of looking back into your family tree, and I'm, I love watching Who Do You Think You Are on the BBC. Judge Rinder, his... his his journey to find that his family were caught up in the Holocaust made me weep. I mean, it was just so moving. So, so that you know, we have this idea of excavating our our family tree. For me, in a poetic way, it's about excavating um, our emotional, spiritual psychological inheritance that we we've received from our families and some of that is really painful um, and difficult really difficult I know that and um, when when I had the attack of anxiety I really started trying to write something about my parents and where did this anxiety come from because my mum had a breakdown when she was in her 50s my dad died at 63 as I've said now he was a he had bad nerves I think he, he liked to drink I think he got that from the navy he, he didn't drink all the time but when he drank and I I can be a bit like this he really went for it he'd have a bottle of gin and a bottle of water and he'd just mix the two wallop I don't know how he drank gin and water but 
But anyway, um, you know, and they were given rum, they were given cigarettes. Um, I've still got a little uh, tin of, of one of my dad's packs of cigarettes. Obviously, they're empty now. Of Navy Cut, 25, non-tipped. He smoked 60 a day, my dad. Um, so, you know, there's this painful inheritance for me. And I'm going to read a poem that I actually wrote when I was in my 20s and touched up a little bit for um, The Call of the Unwritten 10 years ago now. Uh, and it's called From the Medals of My Father. Now, for some reason, I don't know why, but but my mother's reaction to grief was to clear the decks. So sadly for me, after my dad died, she gave away everything, his clothes. Thankfully, she didn't give away his naval sword, which she gave to me, which I still have. I'm looking at it now. And, it, and it's a wonderful inheritance. <clears throat> it's got his name on it. Lieutenant Commander T.R. Scott, R.N. And when he used to stand on parade, he'd have his thumb on it, and the brass has taken on the imprint of his thumb. You can still see his thumbprint. Um, and But she cleared the decks, and he, he had two sets of medals. I've still got his dress medals, the smaller ones, and then there were his big medals that would, he would wear on parade, and she sold them for some reason. And she gave me the money, or some of the money. And I, being the slightly pretentious romantic soul that I am, bought, a, a, I, I was absolutely obsessed with Dr. Zhivago at that time, and I bought a book of Pasternak's poetry. Um, and at that time I was going to see a professor. Um, I I got into poetry and... Um, called Robert Murray, a Jesuit. He was a biblical studies professor, an absolute polymath. Um, he'd been a friend of Tolkien's. There are letters between them in, in Tolkien's published letters. And he was just, his, I think his grandfather or father had been the compiler of the Oxford English Dictionary, one of them. That's how he knew Tolkien. And he spoke about five ancient languages. He was a really clever guy. But he loved poetry and Somehow in a tutorial, I'd said something about poetry and he said oh, I, that I wrote it, which I was, even then I was kind of making forays into it. And he said, oh, well, bring me one. And I did. And it was rubbish, of course. But he started to encourage me. And this was the first thing that I brought him where he said, that's a poem. From the medals of my father. From the sale of my late father's medals, I bought a book of Pasternak's poems in which is recorded all our sorrow, as now I mouth the words, death stole from you. The symbols of victory and defeat that emblazoned your breast, long forgotten, recur in images that prickle like spines. Remembering you pulls reluctantly a plaster from an unhealed wound, and as the warm blood forms bright domed droplets, lurking pain is as sleepless as my nights. Father, why have you forsaken me? I once recall seeing a strange fish whose healing secretions were only released when it sensed affliction in its offspring. I hope it was a dream of you and me. Father, why have you forsaken me? Aged 11, I went on holiday, left you in good health, then something awful on my grandmother's lips, he is dead. She and her sister walked me through fields of sugar beet, sweet anaesthetists, they let me be. Too complacent, I never said goodbye. Now our parting has sculpted my life. Father, why have you forsaken me? Months after, I caught sight of you framed in the door, but the light played charlatan, left me the house empty, bereft of it and you. Father, why have you forsaken me? Death drove a wedge to part us. That wedge now props the door open which seemed shut and bolted darkness. Yet the poems still speak of our parting. No continuity, just a torturous gap, a stretch of fallow soil. Loss is the water that splits the seeds open, goading me to grow up to you. Grief is the nurse that takes my temperature, and as I drain the cup you poured for me, its emptiness is a painful preface.
My mother sold your medals to forget the past. I bought the poems to rescue it. I bought the poems to rescue it. That's the poem of a of a, a person in their twenties. I was so clobbered by my dad's death. And as an eleven year old and in my teenage years, you you just get on with it. <laughs> That's the inheritance from my mother. Just get on with it. And I did. But I I I didn't feel in any sense of confidence in myself. I didn't do well at school. I got a job selling clothes in a in the eighties in this awful clothes shop. I had no sense of who I was, um, and my mother had a breakdown caused by not grieving. They put her on a whole load of tranquilizers when my dad died, and she became addicted to them. And about five years later, I had this crashing breakdown. And part of it, they got her off the tranquilizers, and she improved massively. Um, but it was all to do with not grieving. And that poem, you know, grief is the nurse that takes my temperature. Um, I recognized even in my late twenties that, that it opened up this fallow space, this, this um, grief, you know, was a wedge that propped a door open, goading me to go up to you. Um, and I, I, that is what's happened in my life. It's the most painful thing that happened to me. Uh, it really was just just crippling in so many ways. And yet, it sent me on this search for what does this all mean? What is this all about? That's why I think I, I became a kind of Christian when I was 19 and trained for the priesthood. I was searching for what this was all about. What does it all mean? And that's why poetry is so powerful to me because it helps us, it helps us wrestle with the unknown, with the with the unfathomable, with the painful, with the incredibly joyful. My memories of my dad are fantastic. He took me to the football matches. He played football with me. He he had a great sense of humour. He had a lovely speaking voice. He he was a gentle soul he had a lot of kindness and when I went walking with my un uncle and auntie uh, one of the things they said to me about him was that he was really kind um, and and my mother was the kind of driving force I think in the marriage she was a she was one of these get up and go do things people um, my dad was more placid I think I've inherited some of that placidity um, and 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 she kind of organised him in some ways, um, and and you know the love between them was very profound. She never ever found anyone like him after. She had a number of relationships, but they all fizzled out and came to nothing. And she used to say to me, "There was no one like your dad, um, n n no one like your dad," um, and and so. Part of my life's journey over the past few years has been to try and understand who my dad was as I've come into the age he was when I remember him. Um, he was born in Ashington in uh, Northumberland where Bobby and Jackie Charlton, and Jackie Milburn, if anyone remembers him, great footballers were born. Working class, called the biggest pit village in the world at one time. Um, six pits surrounded Ashington and all the men worked there. My grandfather, my dad's dad, Joseph, so my dad's mum and dad were called Joseph and Mary. Uh, Joseph Scott was a, a jeweler and a watch mender and uh, he worked for the co-op, massive co-op in Ashington, 30,000 people in the town. Um, and so he wasn't a pit man, came from Penrith originally, I think. And, um, he, my dad, there were kind of a number of choices. One was obviously to go down the pit. The other was to work on public services. So my dad was a bus conductor <clears throat> or to join the services. Remember, my dad was born in 1910. So when he was coming of age to work, 
this was the depression. So my dad signed up for the Navy, the lowest rank. He was, he, he was interested in engineering. So the lowest rank was a second stoker, which basically I think at that time meant you shoveled coal into the engine of the ship. You were down in the bowels of the ship and my dad, uh, that's what he did. And he gradually worked his way up through the ranks uh, and became a warrant officer. Um, and by the end of his career, he was a lieutenant commander, which is quite unusual. I, I have a friend who said to me, you know, that, that who was in the Navy, had the same rank actually, and said that's quite a feat to work your way up like that. Gave my dad an incredible um, affinity with the men, I think. And towards the end of his career, he trained ratings, he trained sailors. Um, and I've got a photograph of him on the parade ground with the sword that I mentioned earlier looking. He was five foot six, my dad. He was a small man with a barrel chest and he's standing there looking proud as a peacock. Um, and I wrote this piece that I'm going to read in a second about him about two photographs. So during the Second World War, my dad was already involved in the war because he was in the Navy when it started. And from what I can work out, he was on destroyers in the Atlantic Ocean um, during the first part of the war. And then they were shipped out to um, Sri Lanka, to the Pacific and the Indian Ocean for the Japanese war. And he, was on an aircraft carrier called the HMS Hermes, which was a converted First World War battleship, had a wooden deck, and they would fly biplanes off it. Um, and the two photographs that the poem talks about, one is, I found it on the internet, it's a picture of the Hermes sinking. So in 1942, Japanese plane spotters spotted the fleet that had been at Candy Harbour. So for some reason, the military, the naval people thought it would be good to move all these ships out of the harbour so they didn't get bombed like Pearl Harbour. My dad's ship was moved out without any planes on it, but then they were spotted and dive bombers came and dive bombed the plane and it began to sink. And this photograph is of the ship listing with smoke coming out of it uh, from an aerial photograph. And it just, when I look at it, I think my dad was there on that ship at that point. The other photograph is the one that my dad had on his desk at work. So when he left the Navy, he worked for engineering companies, um, one called Navy United in Sheffield, um, as like a project manager, an expediter, he was called. And um, he had this picture of me in my mum's arms, wrapped, I would be about two years old, wrapped in a white towel, cuddled into my mum. And he loved that picture. Um, so that's the two photographs that the, uh, that the poem is about. And he, he this, 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 this event shaped so much of my dad's life. He'd had <clears throat> on his palms were scars because the, one of the bombs, in early bombs in the bombing of the ship, took out the bridge. So all of the senior officers were killed. So no orders were given for abandoned ship. And the people in the engine room suddenly realised, we need to get out of here. We need to get out of here. And they climbed up the pipes, which were hot, which burnt their hands. And then they jumped into the water. And I found this incredible book called The Hermes Adventure. So... There was a naval photographer on the ship um, recording the ship's progress and then suddenly found himself in a sinking ship but took photographs as the ship was sinking and then was, was put onto a life raft. The camera incredibly survived and so did the film. He handed it in to the Ministry of Defence and I don't know how long after, 15 years after, the film was developed and the pictures came out and they were sent to his... Uh, son who because he died and um, his son had this project to find all the veterans of the sinking of the Hermes and, and ask them questions 
and they've put it all in a book with the photographs and 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 i managed to get it on on amazon as a second-hand book it cost me about 80 quid and um in it there's a, a bit where a guy is reminiscing and he says and i saw mechanician tommy scott at the because uh, when they'd all got off the boats they were put in life rafts the lifeboats were broken so they were rafts that inflatable rafts and the wounded were put in the rafts and all the men like my dad who were okay hang on to the edges they knew that a mayday had gone out and that there was a hospital ship possibly on its way and and so they they were in the water for eight hours and um this this is just incredible to me and 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 these photographs and this guy so when the hospital ship called the vita which means life uh appeared this guy's saying i saw tommy scott at the bottom of the gangplank and called him to come up and he and he came up and i was so relieved to see him and then we sat all night on the the deck listening to the surgeons working on on the wounded smoking cigarettes and talking about all the events of our of our day um and we heard them throwing the dead over the side of the ship and and the fact that he mentioned my dad and i remember my dad smoking it all felt as if my dad had reached out to me from the past um and so this is the piece two photographs and it starts with a quote from a book called the cruel sea which was my dad's favorite book and i didn't know why till i read it and it's about a lieutenant commander in charge of a ship and the events that happened to them in the mediterranean and there's one terrible bit where he has to sail over british sailors in the water to to attack a german u-boat and and there's this famous scene where um the two senior officers it's uh, jack hawkins plays the main character that my dad loved are saying how do we deal what do we do with this um and he says he simply reached out his hand for the bottle again it was quite true that for the thoughts there was gin it was quite true that for the thoughts there was gin nicholas montserrat the cruelty i have two photographs that speak to me of my father and he is visible in neither the first used to sit on his desk at work it is of me around three years old in my mother's lap swaddled in a white towel freshly laundered both the towel and me the second i found on the internet it is of the ship, the HMS Hermes, sinking. On the morning of Thursday, April the 9th, 1942, Japanese dive bombers off the coast of Sri Lanka clustered like a swarm of ants on a corpse, their bombs detonating below the decks of the old carrier and slowly sinking her. My father, a mechanician in the engine room, the ship, headless after the explosion that took out the bridge and the captain, finally fled up to the decks and into the oil-dark sea with nothing but flimsy life rafts in it. He spoke of the wounded men they cradled on those rafts, that they stripped to cover them against the merciless sky, waiting naked for rescue by the hospital ship they hoped was coming. After a few hours, the saving white and red-crossed hull of the Vita arrived, and once cleaned and treated, they clothed them again in large white bath towels, which they wore like sarongs. The, on disembarkation at Colombo, orderlies retrieved the ship's property and left my father and his crewmates naked as the day they were born, and down the gangway to greet some British dignitary with his wife. The woman, he recalled, did not bat an upper-class eyelid and welcomed them ashore with a white-gloved handshake. Did the white towel my mother wrapped me in trigger some buried memory of survival, his own inferno, his scarred hands from the hot pipes, placing my photograph on his desk? Now I have the picture he kept alongside the story of his descent into hell captured in a grainy aerial photograph. The frames are like reliquaries, encasing the photographs 
the towels, the oncoming nakedness. I touch them with a sorrowful veneration as they connect me to that brief 12 years at the end of his 63 and the beginning of my 56, my only a child's recall. They ask me such insistent and adult questions. Will you accept your own wounded, naked body now that you are old and have faced your own night sea journey, your own peril on the sea? How will you set sail again on that cruel sea? And will his scarred hands be felt overlaying yours on the tiller, juddering against the current, calming you for the weather that is to come? How will you set sail again on that cruel sea? And will his scarred hand be felt overlaying yours on the tiller, juddering against the current, calming you, calming you, calming you for the weather that is to come? This body I have, I look quite like my dad. I have a similar body shape. I've obviously inherited some of his placidity, his nervousness. I've got a fantastic photograph that my mother took of him and he's got a camera in his hand and he's looking up surprised because she got her camera out and snapped him before he snapped her. And the look on his face is so familiar to me. There's an uncertainty about him. What's his place in the world? When he left the Navy, he never really coped with civilian life. He couldn't understand. He, was, he, he, he came to Sheffield to be the chief engineer on the building of Coal Brothers, which is a John Lewis store in Sheffield. And a manager there who didn't like him for some reason, he was the chief engineer, his face didn't fit for some reason and was really nasty to him and one day swore at him and apparently my father looked at him and said in never in all my years in the navy did a senior officer swear at me i'm not about to take that now and apparently the bloke looked like a whip cur and and um, and apologized so there was a steel in my dad um, but there was uncertainty and there was this uh, desire to succeed. That's why he worked his way up the ranks. I feel that. I feel so much of the kind uncertainty. And then in my mother, her tenacity. My kids, when she died at the funeral, they said in their, their little contribution, they wrote the bidding prayers for the funeral. Our grandma was not like a grandma, she was like a third parent. <laughs> and that was true. That was really true. I mean, she would never hesitate to tell me and Wilma how we were going wrong. Um, she was like a third parent, but, but what they also recognised was that when she walked in a room, you felt better. I mean, she could then make you feel ten times worse by berating you for this and that, but... In a crisis, she, when Lara was really sick in hospital in London, when she came down, all of us relaxed. Something about her, her having been through the all-humbling darkness, brought this incredible uh, sense that it was all going to be okay. It'll be okay. And, and I remember six months before she died, she showed me where her will was. She said... You know, I'm not intending to go necessarily. I just want you to know. And she left everything in order. Um, and she said, I'm not frightened of dying. I'm not frightened of dying. Um, but but I'll miss you. And she left me this little card. And it said, to my son Adrian, who gave me so much joy. And that was her other great gift to me. Was that she uh, took joy in everything in the simple things, the simple things, the just, you know, she had pets, she had dogs, her dog Jess that was with her when she died, 
She just loved all of those things. That it is a question of enduring, surviving, just getting on with it, but doing it with elan, with kindness and the beautiful, beautiful ordinariness of love. That's what she gave to me, a sense of the beautiful ordinariness of love. And she could laugh. My goodness, could she laugh till the tears ran down her face about all kinds of crazy things. So this is the end of this podcast. Uh, it will be called The Beautiful Ordinariness of Love, what we inherit from our families. And um, I hope that it encourages you to think, even, you know, I inherited a lot of tough stuff from my family. Um that we find a way of, of encompassing and getting our arms round what's made us who we are so that we can hand over to the next generation something of what we've inherited that is good. Thanks for listening and uh, it won't be so long next time. Thanks very much. Bye. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast.